0: Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel. And today we're sitting down with Tommy Newman, the director of public affairs from the United Way, talking about the Everyone in L.A. campaign. But before we do that, how are you doing today, Tommy? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about the Everyone in L.A. campaign and then also uh, how United Way is working with that.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on today to talk. Um, and thanks for all the work that you do. Thank you. So just a little backstory to give some context. Uh Before I started working at the United Way, I was actually on loan from L.A. Family Housing, which is a homeless service provider here in L.A., also an affordable housing developer, and I was on loan to the United Way to work on the HHH and H campaigns. So I was uh, lucky enough to work on both of those and uh, strong support across the county on both of those. Um, But we knew when we ran those campaigns that the money would not just spend itself. Uh, The plans and words on paper would not magically spring to life, and so that we would always need a sort of engine on the outside to drive those measures specifically forward once they passed. Uh, And that was our intention from the beginning, was to create something that spoke to the same million and a half people who voted yes on those measures. Uh, along the way, as opposed to coming back to them in eight years saying, here's what we did, here's what we didn't do, here's what worked, here's what didn't, please give us more money. Because remember that HHH uh, will fund a discrete amount of housing construction, and when we get to that, when we spend all that money, we spend all that money, whether or not we get to the goal, which is a real challenge for us. Because and and that, that's about.
0: separate from the, the permanent sales tax.
1: That's right. And then the sales tax, which is a quarter cent, expires after 10 years. Um, so that one also... Uh, has a shelf life on it. And in both instances, we need to have an active conversation every day about how those dollars are being used. Can they be used uh, more efficiently? Can we stretch them further? Um, And how is it working? So that right there is our call to action for the Everyone In campaign. And so United Way, which has worked on homelessness uh, for at least the last decade, creating the Home for Good initiative, um, said we need to step it up. We need to engage with the broader public more intentionally uh, and we need to be the engine on the outside that keeps our sort of eyes on the prize and pushes forward on the five billion dollars uh, that we need to spend over the next 10 years. So that's the that's the idea.
0: And and what kind of success have you been finding at like City Hall and with the mayor's office? Because when it comes down to it, they're the they have the power of the pen, the power of the purse. So I assume they're the ultimate target for for any push that you're doing.
1: Yeah, so I would uh, think of this in a couple ways. In the context of HHH, which is the one that builds housing, The key linchpin in that is each one of the 15 city council members, because as currently constructed, the only way you can get dollars from HHH to build a building is to have a letter from the council office. Technically, it's called a letter of acknowledgement. So they could just say, we acknowledge this project. Here's the money. Go get them. It's not usually how the letter is used. Instead, the letter tends to be, uh, we like this, we support this project uh, in every way, shape, and form. We feel confident that this project uh, is not going to get us in hot water, um, and they use it as their key point of leverage. So that right there for HHH is the focus of our energy.
0: And I was going to say the LA Times did some reporting a couple weeks ago on these these letters specifically, and found that a lot of them are being sat on. They're not really being used as kind of like leveraged by the, the city council asking for concessions they're just kind of getting buried um and i was wondering what your guys experience has been with that so far
1: yeah so the thing about the letter is it existed before hhh uh it's something that the city's housing department put into place a number of years ago i think almost 10 years ago now uh as sort of uh i th- i think it was good faith once upon a time to create sort of a standard to say Um, okay, everybody has, you know, we've done the community engagement, the buy-in is there, we're not surprising people, we can move forward. I'm not so sure that it's been used in good faith since then. Um, The the letter is entirely subjective. What you would hope is that there would be an objective set of criteria. You did community outreach meetings, you notified these people, you took into into account these things, here's your letter, carry on. That's not the way it works. In some districts, the letter is used almost entirely about how the building looks. In some districts, the letter is used uh, to shape who gets to live in the building, so what's the target population for the building. So you really have to, as a supportive housing developer, understand the sort of power mapping around your site and all those variables each and every time because no two buildings are the same. That's what makes the letter challenging.
0: So this isn't really just a fight across the city. It's actually a fight across 15 almost independent districts for each councilman.
1: 15 little mayors, as they're often
0: called. And all of these, and for anyone who lives in LA, you know that none of these districts are homogenous. They're all wildly different and divergent. So it seems like you would have within there like the certain power players being able to like step on toes and stop stuff from happening. Um, But this is for uh, just permanent supportive housing, like stuff that's going to be built. What about temporary and emergency housing? What's been going on on that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a few different buckets. There's money in HHH to build facilities. So homeless service facilities that could be short term, interim housing, that could be uh, storage, that could be uh, showers as long as they're permanent. Um, that's the condition of the bond funding. So the trailers don't count because uh, those can you know, be rolled away. Yeah. The tents, depending on how permanent the tent feels or, or is, uh, determines whether or not we could get HHH dollars in there for it. So that's the first threshold that we have to think of. Um, in the context of increasing the number of shelter beds that are available, which we certainly need to do. Um, the most recent development on that is the mayor's proposal to spend $20 million in capital costs, mm-hmm. not the operating. The operating dollars would come from Measure H from the county.
0: But but getting them built would be for that
1: $20 For that $20 million. Um, and so that's important, and we need to increase the supply of uh, interim and shelter beds that we have. What we don't What we need to balance and what's important that we don't forget um, is that we need to balance how much uh, dollars and energy we're putting into these short term beds versus increasing the supply of permanent housing, Mm -hmm. whether that's supportive housing or just regular affordable housing. Um, So that's the tension that we need to all keep front and center, because don't forget that to put one to create a new shelter bed. Costs you uh, about fifteen thousand dollars on average, and then the operating cost for that bed annually going forward is fifteen thousand dollars a year. Wow. So, and that's with and and let's break that down. That's forty bucks a night. Mm-hmm. That's the that's forty bucks a night for a bed, which is pretty cheap, mm-hmm. and that includes the case management, the supportive services, mm-hmm. the the support that you need, so that that bed doesn't become purgatory for someone mm-hmm. where they are stuck in a cycle forever. You need to be able to have that bed be the shortest stay possible with the transition into permanent housing as quick. as.
0: And as things stand now, from what I understand in shelters, you generally have a bit of a limit on how long you're supposed to be in a shelter. Like they don't really want you in there for permanently for a year. It's for a few months to get you on your, your feet and then out the door. Is that process working? Like are people going from shelter beds to permanent housing or are they ending up back on the street?
1: It's not working. Uh, the, the ideal is that you're there, that those beds are turning over somewhere between two and four times a year. So that means six months to three months, three months to six months, if we did it in a more logical order, um, that somebody's on that bed and then they're into permanent housing. What we're seeing is more like a year Uh, somebody's been in that bed for a year, fundamentally, because we don't have a place uh, where that person can go live. Even with a Section 8 voucher or some other sort of long-term subsidy, rent subsidy, um, people still can't find a place to use them. Mm -hmm. We have thousands of people who are holding rent vouchers, but can't find an apartment to use them. That's a bigger challenge.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think over a million people applied for the last round of of Section 8, just, just here in LA County, not even across the state, but just here in LA, over a million people applied. And I think 10% of them or something actually got them it's an insane waiting list Um, and I want to see before we talk about LA uh, in the context of what other counties are doing because Orange County has had a series of starts and fits to try and get more supportive housing temporary as well as the others The the plan they seem to have landed on is shipping a lot of people out to a closed down school And that's the sort of thing that I don't think we want to see here in LA. Um, So how are we going to make sure that like the plans that work here in LA don't push out to other um, uh, counties around us, like don't have unintended consequences that make Orange County a worse place for somebody to be homeless? Bingo,
1: yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, While we do have a massive crisis on our streets uh, and there's no sugarcoating that or two ways to look at it, what we should be proud of Is that we have built a system and we have a set of strategies that is as it should be and when I say that I mean we have over 65 nonprofit service providers who work across LA County and they are all knitted together through a shared sort of system of information um, as opposed to the old days where each one had their own list with their own set of criteria and it was one giant mess Um, it took us about the last six years to build out that system so that all those service providers were linked together.
0: And and this is what's called CES, right? The County Engagement System?
1: Coordinated Entry System. There we go. Which is, yeah, a lot of acronyms acronyms in this work.
0: I I just learned about that one this week. I didn't know about it, but uh, Jessica, one of our team members talked to a woman who develops supportive housing and affordable Mm -hmm. housing and was like, yeah, somebody needs to be in CES. And it's like, what's that? Mm -hmm. Oh, how do we get people into CES? But Mm -hmm. um, that's helped fill in a lot of the holes in the county in general. Um, What needs to be changed in that to make it more effective? What what do you guys want to see?
1: My point was going to be that Orange County doesn't have that. Uh, My point was that uh, we are years ahead of where Orange County is Mm -hmm. in building out a system that can actually help connect people with permanent housing, Um, that we are years ahead in sort of identifying the core priorities of what we want to do, which is permanent housing placement, and then figuring out all of the funding streams and land use changes that we need to make. So I would say that Orange County is at least five to 10 years behind where we are in LA. Mm-hmm. Now their scope of their challenge is much smaller than ours partially because they've pushed a lot of folks out of Orange County and into LA County yeah. for many years uh, in the same way that uh, some of the smaller cities in LA County have pushed them into the city of LA. Mm-hmm. So we always have to think about that and, and understand what the drivers are of this issue. Um, but we are in a better place because we have better a better structure in place with more thought out strategies uh, which is a good thing.
0: And, and how did the rest of the counties kind of look overall? Is L.A. County uh, very far ahead? Um, how do things look in San Francisco? Are they developing these sorts of systems across the state? Yeah, That's a good question. I would
1: say that L.A. County uh, and the city of L.A. is both uh, further ahead and further behind, <laughs> if that's possible. Further ahead in, in um, having this be the issue. Uh, it's being talked about at every level of government. It's being talked about in every community across the city and across this county. That's unusual. That's unusual for this issue. That's unusual for Angelinos. With Angelenos. Um, we've done a lot of uh, sort of opinion polling through the course of those campaigns, HHH and H, that I worked on. And um, it's usually historically been traffic, crime, crime, traffic. Like those were the priorities of Angelenos uh, countywide and homelessness now is up in the top one too. Yeah. So housing and homelessness up there in a way that, it's this is, this is not like we haven't had homelessness uh, for decades. Skid Row has existed for 80 years.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I before the gentrification, I remember looking at uh, places when I went to USC, like living in downtown Little Tokyo when that was the first places popping up, and being really surprised that that part of LA existed because it's so far removed from the places I was used to living. Um, and that didn't seem to get better. Now it's just sort of more entangled in daily life as more, like, sort of wealthier people have moved in. And that's created new pressures.
1: Yeah, I think that's true, uh, certainly downtown. And that's created a, a lot of pressure on Jose Huizar, for sure. Um, which, you know, a lot of those folks were living on the streets before, and there wasn't uh, the wealth coming in to say, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Um, so that, that one is complicated in many ways, but remember that 90% of the people experiencing homelessness are not on Skid Row. 90% of the people experiencing homelessness are spread across this county, and so our system uh, hit max capacity a few years ago, about three or four years ago, and the spillover was straight onto the streets in every corner of the Mm -hmm. county. That's how we've ended up in this point. So um, to your Initial question, that's what's so fun about this topic, is that we can go off on these massive rabbit holes uh, and the rest of this conversation 45 minutes later, we're like, we didn't talk about any of the things we wanted to talk about. Um, So back to your initial question, L.A. is both ahead and behind in the context of the state. San Francisco has put more money into this and thought about it and talked about it longer than we have, but has gotten stuck. Um, They sort of hit a wall in terms of the permanent housing component of this uh that is so critical because unless we have that final end result the permanent housing whether it's supportive housing which remember for all of you listening the millions of you out there uh a third of the people who are experiencing homelessness are appropriate for supportive housing in terms of chronically homeless or a long-term disability um two-thirds of the folks experiencing homelessness just need a place they can afford yeah that's our challenge here so san francisco probably has been talking about this and um, tried more piloted more than we have, um, but has hit a wall in a way that I don't think we've hit a wall yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are dangerously close to hitting that.
0: And and we are seeing some development here. Like the the Weingart Center uh, is rolling out a very very shiny new building uh, on Skid Row. I think uh, like Sixth and Gladys around there. Uh, are you guys seeing a lot of success with getting the approvals? Because obviously they haven't broken ground on this. But are you seeing momentum now? on getting supportive housing kind of promised to be built in in, in the, the port where it will be built is no longer a pie in the sky idea.
1: We are in an unusual moment because the city council has agreed to each take each district take a minimum of 222 units of supportive housing by July 1st. 2020. And so uh, when we say take a minimum, we mean approve, grant that letter of acknowledgement that we talked about earlier. Um, And that's a big deal. That's the first time we've had every district step up. Uh, And we actually have a tracker on our website, everyoneinla.org, which will show you how much supportive housing they have already supported uh, funded by HHH. And then you can also see how much supportive housing exists in their district already, separate from HHH, because remember, we've been building this for a little while now. So we are at an unusual moment in that um, the solution has been funded by the voters, the mm-hmm. billion dollars for it. The city council has agreed to divide up the initial chunk uh, amongst their 15. And now the work is getting cited in mm-hmm. those districts. And so um, we can do it. Absolutely. There's a, a sense of momentum and a sense of progress and also a sense of sort of... Um, I don't know if people are like worn down because tents are in every community or what, but what we hear over and over again at some of these neighborhood council meetings and other community meetings is, shit, the tents are already here, folks are already living outside, why don't we just help them live inside yeah. in the same community? So I think that we are at an unusual moment. We make way too big of a deal out of the NIMBYs and the local opposition. Uh, we conducted a poll, United Way conducted a poll of countywide voters a few months back because we wanted to dig into this a little deeper. And so we asked, voters, June 2018 primary voters. So remember, these are not normal people who vote in primaries. Uh, These are the ones who are (laughs) unusual uh, when you look at turnout. Uh, And so we asked that universe of people, um, would you support housing for homeless people in your neighborhood? We didn't ask them, would you support supportive housing in your community, since nobody knows what supportive housing is. Um, We wanted to not hide the ball and play it straight. And so we said homeless people, which uh, to all of the stereotypes attached to that one, um, everything you can imagine. And then we said neighborhood, because that's generally perceived to be closer and tighter in than community, Mm -hmm. where people are like, oh, yeah, community, that could be 10 miles away. Um, 69 percent of those June 2018 primary voters said, yes, I would support supportive housing in my neighborhood for homeless people and 42% of those 69 said they would strongly support it in their neighborhood. The opposition, the strong oppose, which is, you know, the way we break these numbers into pieces was 16% strong oppose. So sure. When I uh, share these numbers, people are like, oh, they were lying. I was like, okay, yeah, maybe they were lying. So I'll just take the 42% strong support and say those are the ones who knew what they were saying yes to. That's much higher than our sort of collective narrative represents
0: yeah and and much closer to, to what you could use that plurality to like get concessions and, and push for stuff I remember uh, in in my neighborhood there was a Transitional housing they wanted to bring in, and the landlord's big opposition to it was that they wanted to eliminate parking spaces for that that unit. And they were like, "No, well, we can't have this if there's no parking spaces." They didn't care about the the halfway house there, the transitional housing there. They were more concerned about like, "Oh, well, my tenants won't have a place to park." So, how are those secondary issues kind of entering into this when you're talking to communities and neighborhoods and explaining to them what kind of impact they would see from this housing?
1: Yeah, parking is like you know the third rail of politics in Los Angeles, and yet. The supportive housing ordinance, which just got uh, signed by the mayor and approved, um, eliminates the parking requirement for the target population in supportive housing buildings. Mm. So target population are folks who are living in the supportive units as opposed to, say, the staff that works on site or the visitor requirements or just regular affordable units, which also Mm. exist in supportive housing buildings. So when folks came to me at United Way and said, hey, can United Way run quarterback on getting the supportive housing ordinance through City Hall. I said, yeah, sure, we could do it, but just know that the the parking elimination in there is red hot and it's gonna make all of our lives miserable and I don't know if we'll be able to keep it in there. Um, I also said that it would take us at least a year to get that ordinance through City Hall. We started uh, doing community meetings on that ordinance back in the fall in about October Mm -hmm. and it was signed into law two weeks ago. Um, And the parking elimination stayed in the bill the whole way through.
0: That's some really amazing momentum. Um, were you feeling like there was fairly unanimous support or or do you feel like you're, you're kind of fighting amongst factions?
1: It was a great example uh, of why organizing and turnout and participating in the conversation is so important. Mm. At every meeting along the way, whether it was a planning commission meeting or at City Hall, some committee meeting or something like that, we outnumbered the opposition at least four to one. Wow. And by the end of the process, at the last committee meeting, the opposition didn't show up anymore. So all we did was just blunt force, have tons of people showing up. We met with every council office and talked about why this was reasonable, why this would stretch taxpayer Taxpayer dollars further um, since each parking space costs somewhere between thirty 000 and fifty thousand uh, dollars that's hHh money going into parking spaces that won't be used because the folks who are living in these units have severe disabilities or chronically homeless or deeply poor and they're not going to have a car that they need to park mm-hmm. in that space so it was making the right argument but it was also showing up and being active in the process
0: and uh, to to go back to your guys tracker um, when you're tracking supportive using th- units that have been uh, approved and then also funded by each council member, Uh, I found this to be a really interesting tool and I want to give a a shout out to to Mitch uh, because CD13 is actually at the top of that chart, which I was very excited to see. Um, But I noticed there's a lot of people at zero. So what's your plan for getting those council members to start approving this housing? Yeah,
1: the 222 plan is... Um, our organizing framework for everyone in. So we haven't touched on that yet, and I'll I'll knock that out real quick right now. Everyone in, our audience is the million and a half people who voted yes on either of those measures. So we're talking to a broad constituency of people, um, which is why so much of our work Um, is complementary to the um, more traditional on-the-ground grassroots organizing that's happening, whether it's she does or others. Um, It all complements each other. It all layers together because we've got to be talking to everyone, right? Um, So we have a communications campaign that's countywide. That's through social, that's through a lot of earned media work, trying to get the right stories into Mm -hmm. the various outlets. Um, Then in the middle portion of our campaign, we like to think of it as sort of like a funnel. The biggest part of the campaign is the communications component, talking to lots of people. The mid portion of the campaign is the engagement work. So that's community pop-ups. That's first person storytelling events Mm -hmm. where we take this issue that feels so unapproachable and so overwhelming, and we humanize it and we localize it. Mm-hmm. When you take homelessness and you stop talking about the 57,000, but instead you talk about the 5,000 people on the west side, or the 7,000 people in the valley, or the 8,000 people in South LA, and then you break that, the, that big number down into smaller pieces, all of a sudden everybody's like, maybe we can do this, Maybe maybe this is something that if we just stick with it, we can make progress on, because we can. Um, And so that's how we use those pop-ups, to Mm -hmm. tell first-person stories, to bring partners together from those communities, and to make it uh, approachable for Mm -hmm. big, big chunks of the population. The most narrow point of the campaign, and this is where 222 comes in, is the organizing work. Mm -hmm. So we've uh, been lucky to bring on a guy named Mike Dennis, who was over at ELAC for many years running their organizing. He's our organizing director, and we have seven organizers working specific geographic regions across the county. And I would say it's probably 70-30 grass tops versus base building. Uh, Because there are a lot of great organizations out there uh, who need a little extra help knowing where their energy should be spent. Given the talking points, there's a lot of organizations out there that organize people, uh, but not necessarily around the issue of homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to be that resource, be that glue that brings groups together, leverages the energy on the ground. And we want to channel all of it right there at the 222 plan. That's our organizing framework. Figuring out, okay, where is Council District X on their path to 222? Mm -hmm. How many do they see coming? And what's that delta? And then how are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. Is it through publicly owned land? Is it through a church parking lot that only gets used once a week for four hours? What what do we need to do to piece that together? Um, that is our call to action for our organizers on the ground.
0: And I, I wanted to touch on this a little bit because we've we've started, uh, especially with the the uh, L.A. City Council plan that passed, uh, lowering the requirements for making a motel into temporary shelter, um, and also looking for you know uh, fallow land, as it were, that could be be used for that, and sort of like doing our own little uh, survey around our area of town. But how are you guys utilizing the like on the ground grassroots? Uh, Resources like ground game. Like, what are you, what marching orders are you giving to those groups?
1: Yeah, it's critical that we. Build the momentum. Let's start with let's just start with city owned land. Yeah. Right. The low hanging fruit. It's really hard to organize around a piece of privately owned land because uh, in doing that, you significantly drive up the value of that land. If somebody owns a you know dumpy lot or a vacant piece of property and all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit, everybody wants us to build supportive housing. Double the price. Yeah. Right. Like we don't want L- L.A. City Hall has deep pockets. <laughs> um, we exactly right. HHH dollars. Oh, a billion dollars out there price just went up. So land that's already owned by the public is the low-hanging fruit. Mm. And we need to make sure that we have squeezed every ounce out of that land that we already own, whether it's the city of L.A., L.A.USD, which is the largest landowner in the county of Los Angeles, the county, the federal government. Um, Let's make sure that we leave no stone unturned on those pieces of land first. I mean, the city owns 135 parking lots and so far has made about 10 of them available for housing. So that's our low hanging fruit. We should all be focusing in on those pieces of land, mm-hmm. and we should be organizing around those pieces of land and pressuring those council offices, letting them know that the support is there. Remember, these council offices, yeah, they need to be pushed, but they're also desperate for wins and solutions. Yeah. We got this billion dollars out there, which would be a scandal if we didn't spend it. Uh, we have this massive crisis that they're all getting hammered on on a daily basis by every one of their constituents. What's mm-hmm. going on with the tents? Why aren't you fixing this now? So. That pressure is there. We need to almost give them the outlet, the solution right in front of them and make sure that that path to victory is there. So my call to action for both for my organizers and for anybody out there is whatever community you're in, whether it's the West San Fernando Valley or the central LA area, figure out where the publicly owned land is and then ask that council office why it hasn't been made available for study at least, Mm -hmm. because that's the first step, is a motion from the council office to study the piece of land to make it potentially available uh, for either supportive housing or crisis housing, bridge housing. Um, there was actually three motions that went in on Friday. One from Mitch uh, in regards to a city-owned parking lot in Hollywood um, to study it for a hundred beds of crisis housing. Uh, Paul Kricorian put in. The, he's the Studio City sort of East San Fernando Valley guy. Uh, suggested eight pieces of city land for study. So, again, momentum, momentum, it's there. We all just need to keep throwing kindling into that fire and get that thing roaring as much as
0: possible. And it seems like the the powers that be and kind of the bureaucracies that run out of City Hall are becoming more attentive to this. Uh, the LA Times, again, had some great reporting on money that the city – Uh, A few years ago, decided to not spend on homelessness and instead put to city services, which generally meant the police. Uh, But they're also looking at PATH has been leaving a lot of money on the table. Um, And what how have you guys been tracking that and figuring out whether or not the city is actually doing what they're supposed to be doing with those funds?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, The city historically has invested very little of its general fund money into this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, It has looked to the county to spend the dollars. Uh, the money that's has been spent on homelessness or the funding of housing historically has been federal money mm-hmm. um, and so that's a, a really important angle for all of us to hold them accountable on. I mean I was having a conversation with somebody recently and I think that there is uh, ninety million dollars in this year's budget uh, for all things uh, related to vision zero um, Vision Zero is important. Yes. Uh, As a cyclist and a pedestrian, very important. Very important. Um, and I'm not here uh, to rip on Vision Zero uh, with the number of deaths we have on our streets and traffic fatalities. we got to focus on it. $90 million for Vision Zero, $20 million out of the general fund for mm-hmm. homelessness.
0: Yeah. Well, and they'd also been dragging their feet on Vision Zero for several years. It wasn't until somebody really got on Garcetti's case. It was like, okay, we'll finally fund it, and they're not going to make up for the money they haven't spent, which seems like something they keep doing, where they wait several years, drag their feet, and then finally fund it fully. But it doesn't seem like that fills in the backstop. Like, there's money that wasn't spent, and there's, there's harms that we can't solve with that strategy. How do we get away from that? Like, how do we make them spend the money right the first time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So my answer to that is um, you secure dedicated funding that can't be spent on something else through ballot initiatives or other sources Um, we all would be uh, fighting for the rest of our lives in every budget cycle for the sort of crumbs scraps and other pieces um, that's a pretty painful existence yeah. and so many of us in the um, homelessness advocacy space many years ago started saying dedicated revenue dedicated revenue and we said that for a long time and all of a sudden that moment has arrived h dollars can only be spent on the strategies outlined in the authorizing legislation mm-hmm. hhh funds can only be spent on capital construction for, for related for homelessness related uses mm-hmm. um, Honestly, that's the only way you protect money in a budget. Otherwise, you're just going to be down there scrounging in the mud, fighting for dollars against all the other needs
0: Mm -hmm. uh, that are just as important. Vision Zero, for example. Yeah. And now that uh, the illustrious Dr. Ben Carson is the head of HUD. Who's coming to town in two weeks to see what we're doing on homelessness in L.A. Get excited. That's going to, wow. Yeah, it's Um, really going to be helpful. Yeah, drink a lot of coffee before that one. (laughs) Um, But I I assume you guys are anticipating there's going to be a drop in federal support. Mm -hmm. Um, We're already seeing that outlined in kind of Trump's visions of what his budget wants to be. Fortunately, Congress hasn't swung that far to, like, defunding all that stuff, but it looks like. In fact,
1: uh, the HUD budget went up. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it,
0: like we've, we've actually had
1: more progress on the federal funding uh, front than we did under uh, President Obama in his final years, which just tells you how crazy this whole thing is.
0: But so are you guys looking to make California a little bit more autonomous when it comes to that funding and less reliant on the federal government?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's absurd uh, how much local dollars we've had to put up uh, for this issue. When so much of this, so much of the causes of this issue, extends so far beyond LA City or LA County, yeah. um, it really is an abdication of federal responsibility and state responsibility for this issue. And we've all sort of, I guess, accepted that now mm-hmm. to say, "Shit, I guess the money's not coming from anywhere else, so we have to do it ourselves." Um, but I, I don't think we should ever accept that mm-hmm. because uh, homelessness, specifically our topic today, but poverty. In a larger sense is the failure of many systems it's the failure of our healthcare system our education system our criminal justice system our housing and land use system all of those things extend well beyond just city of la or county of la which is why we need those dollars uh, from the federal government why the medicaid expansion was so critical and one of the best anti-poverty tools we've had in decades Mm -hmm. Uh, we need more of those things we need to get more money out of sacramento uh since so many of the folks we have in L.A. County are pushed in from other counties or as the result of legislation that Sacramento has passed mm-hmm. and then left us holding the bag on. Uh, so, yeah, we got to squeeze all of them. Um, but on and the sort of flip side of that coin, we also need to step up on our own because we could point fingers and talk in circles uh, forever and we would just end up with tens of thousands of more people.
0: And I, I wanted to talk because uh, you've mentioned a few times how L.A. has sort of become uh, a magnet for people who, who don't have shelter. Um, and part of this is probably because there's service providers here. People are drawn here by the city. But also, uh, as you've mentioned, other cities and counties displaced their homeless population onto us. I was wondering if you could talk about how those cycles work and if there's a difference in getting somebody who's sort of drifted into L.A. versus somebody who was living in L.A. and ended up becoming homeless, what different services uh, they need and require.
1: Yeah, and I, I want to soften that perception a little bit. So according to the homeless count, at least, which is a imperfect sort source of data, but it is a source. And so we can talk about it. According to the homeless count, 70 percent of the people who are living outside last lived inside in that same community. Um, so that makes sense, right? Like human beings. Do what is comfortable and stay what they know. Yeah. Uh, so I I fully discount uh, and do not agree with the rationale that people are coming here from other states and far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's but, not the But case. dumping does happen. Dumping is different, but yeah. that's within our community here. Oh, so okay. I don't think that um, somebody in Illinois is being dumped into L.A. But like from Nevada, maybe. But I'm thinking more like uh, <laughs> pick a city. Okay, you, like Ventura. <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, and you know that I think just you have to put yourself in the mindset of someone who has lost everything their life has bottomed out the last thing they're gonna do is get on a bus and travel 3,000 miles or Mm -hmm. 2,000 miles to a place they've never been and where they know no one and where nothing looks familiar Mm -hmm. just because it's 72 and sunny in LA doesn't mean that you're ready to like give up everything you've ever known and head on out there. That's mm-hmm. not how it works. When your life falls apart, when everything bottoms out, you stay where you're going to be most comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you'll even hear that, uh, you know, and then I've had so many conversations with people living outside. And, you know, if there's somebody, I had a conversation with a guy who's living a park in Pacoima and he grew up in Pacoima and this is the park he played baseball in when he yeah. was a kid and he couldn't imagine. He didn't want to go down Skid Row. Hell no, it's crazy down there. I'm not going to Skid Row. I'm staying in the community that I know. So when I talk about folks being pushed into LA, I'm talking about, for example, the city of San Marino where you can't park on the street after 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. uh, and every car is chased out of there real quick. We, while it might feel like we have some of the most Ducronian laws in the city of LA, just look at some of the other smaller cities in LA County and you can see how crazy things really can get. Where you basically, you know, can't sit down outside or park your car outside from the hours of 8 p.m. to, you know, 6 a.m. Yeah. That's what pushes folks into the city of L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, most folks uh, are from L.A. County who are experiencing homelessness.
0: Okay, uh, and one thing that we found has been uh, fairly useful when when talking to people about homelessness and trying to explain to them what it's like uh, seeing this crisis first up is our work with DSA Street Watch and what these uh, sweeps look like that. As as the city sells them, they're supposed to be for hygiene and sanitation. And there's, there's a good argument to be made there. We don't provide places for people to take care of their own hygiene. Uh, but there's also a lot of uh, criminalization that comes along with that. And what kind of barriers is that presenting for you guys? Because like the LA County Board of Supervisors, you know, wants to spend $3.5 billion on three new jails, uh, and we're only spending a billion dollars on, on homelessness. So they, it seems like there's a plan there that doesn't involve necessarily everybody ending up in a safe bed.
1: And at least a quarter of the people who are in our jails uh, were homeless before they went into jail and will be homeless when they come out. So it's pretty crazy that we want to spend that much money on building jails, uh, which are a de facto sort of crisis shelter bed for so many people. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, Yeah, I mean, another important stat is that folks who are living outside are disproportionately victims of crime and trying to um, themselves get away from that crime. Yeah. Um, the thing that got me into this work, I was working for an L.A. City Council office uh, as a deputy in one of those offices, and I was uh, working in the Sherman Oaks community and they had like 30 people living outside in Sherman Oaks. So not a giant number, mm-hmm. um, but visible then on Ventura Boulevard, which is sort of the you know core of that community. And so they called me up and they said, Tommy, we've got to do something about this. You got to get them out of here. And I just uh, wasn't going to call up LA, the LAPD senior lead officer and say, hey, can you get out here and you know move these folks along? Because it's not a solution. Mm-hmm. And so what I worked with on that Sherman Oaks community was to raise $25,000 to enter into a increased outreach contract with LA Family Housing. So now, whereas they used to have somebody who would roll through once or twice a month and do outreach to these folks, um, we had a dedicated person coming two to three times a week uh, into that same community and working to try to get these folks entered into CES, remember that's the first step, um, and then help get them matched into permanent housing. So what I've seen over and over again is that communities, whether it's Sherman Oaks uh, or Hollywood or anywhere in between, also don't really buy the law enforcement-based approach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Most people, we did it as a component of that poll where I had the 69% of people support supportive housing in their neighborhoods. We also asked, um, would you prefer that we focus on the root causes of these issues, which means that the visibility will last longer, or would you accept us allowing, would you accept, would you want us to get folks off the street faster, even if it meant we weren't addressing the root causes. So it was a forced choice, root causes or get folks off the street faster. 56% said root causes. Mm -hmm. And that like totally flies in the face of the narrative that we all have in our head, which was people don't care how you get the tents off the street, just get the tents off the street. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. People out there know and understand, A, that the cost of housing is what's driving this issue. So someone's living outside because they can't afford to live inside. They would much rather live inside if possible. Um, so all of this is to say, I don't think that there is tremendous public support for the law enforcement-based solutions mm-hmm. out there. I think it's the easier solution for electeds and short-term mm-hmm. challenges, because the LAPD is, has been the de facto social service agency for the city of Los Angeles for decades, yeah. since there was nothing else and continues to be very little else. Yeah. Now, for the first time ever, we have um, a coordinated outreach and engagement strategy with enough bodies on the ground to cover every region of this county.
0: And would these be uh, what are referred to as hope teams, or this is uh, other um, kind of parts of, of that Yeah, kind of no, structure? that's a good question.
1: So, no, not hope teams. Hope teams um, are a piece of this, but the, m- the one that's at the largest scale are called MDTs, multidisciplinary teams, which are run out of the county um, which don't really have a law enforcement component to them um, and are instead uh, rooted in sort of best practices case management and social services um, which is what you want and so that exists for the first time ever um, they've only fully staffed up over in the last like couple of months so we need to give them some time to build relationships and be out there on a consistent basis because that's how you do this work um, but swirl everything I, together that I've said um, folks out there don't actually buy the law enforcement based solution really works we finally have An alternative to Mm -hmm. the law enforcement based solution uh, for the first time at a countywide scale so now we just need to do it and we need to do it for a while
0: okay Uh, and and uh, I wanted to ask real quick what kind of because you've mentioned kind of the opposition but we haven't really gotten a clear picture of them because it seems like as you mentioned when you talk to folks on the street or like do public polling most people are you know do not want homelessness to continue and want to do something to fix that Uh, but who are the opposition? and what what are their main points of opposition? They don't like that you're spending the money that you're building the buildings. They just think people like living in tents. Like what exactly is or where exactly are they coming from?
1: Yeah, so the opposition it, there is almost none to uh, in the homelessness space. Mm-hmm. There really isn't building short term, interim housing solutions, whether that's crisis housing or bridge housing. Um, that one is harder to do than supportive, but but can still be done. Um, the opposition is to the more macro land use changes that we need, which drive this issue. Okay. So everybody's like homelessness, got to Got to solve it. OK, you're telling me we need supportive housing. OK, fine. You're telling me we need safe places for people to sleep. Instead of the street. OK, fine. And then when I take it one step further and when I say, you know, our housing crisis is our homelessness crisis. Mm-hmm. People always look at me and say, hmm. And I was like, so you know what that means, right? We need to build a lot more housing of all types, mm-hmm. especially the the sort of uh, low income to very low income brackets, that 500,000 unit gap that we have in low-income housing, housing that is affordable to people with low incomes. People are like, ooh, okay, so what does that look like and what does that mean? Mm -hmm. That means building a lot more housing. Mm -hmm. That's where our real challenge is. That's the fight that most people don't want to get into Mm -hmm. because it's messy and it's complicated. I mean, the 35 community plans across the city of Los Angeles are being revised right now, some of them for the first time in a long time, and so far the results are not that promising because they are not creating additional capacity or density in very many places. When they are doing the new expo line plan along that corridor, they've barely increased the amount of housing that can be built Mm -hmm. in the exact places where it should be built, Mm -hmm. along a really nice light rail line that runs from the beach downtown. Like, we should be building a shitload more housing along there in ways that respect the neighborhood character, that are close to the stops, whatever. We can do all that. We have plenty of ways to do that. That's our biggest challenge. That's where the real opposition is. And until we drill into that issue, we won't have the places for people to go off the streets.
0: So it it seems like there's a couple of end games for you guys here. One is is for people who require and are going to require kind of lifetime services because of um, a a permanent disability or some other thing. They're kind of a little bit easier to square away once you've gotten that that supportive housing for the 70 percent of people who are really just on the street because they're probably working but don't have enough to pay for an apartment. Uh, Where's the push go from there? Because you can get them into a house for a bit. You can get them on Section 8. uh, And then in a few years, they'll probably be making enough where they won't. They'll fail the means testing. So how do they not end up on the street again?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the conversation that we all need to be having uh, right now. That's the conversation that we need to be having in the context of the community plan updates, in the context of legislation in Sacramento. Um, how are we, because this is it, this is the moment. This is, this is when we connect those dots between homelessness and housing, um, which has always been the case, uh, but now is the case in a way that's more visible and obvious and um, urgent than it ever has before. That's the conversation that all of us should be having. So yeah, we need to figure out how to get thousands of people off the streets quickly But equally part of that, if not more important, is the conversation about what are we building and where? What are our land use priorities? Where are we willing to have a five story building instead of a single family house? Where where can that happen? Because if we don't have that conversation, uh, then ultimately we're going to be stuck.
0: And it seems like that's also going in sort of fits and starts at the state level because SB 827 was the big um, kind of kerfluffle for a bit and then died rather unceremoniously in uh, in committee at at its first vote um, after lots of money was spent on it but that seems like that's sort of intransigent uh, on a state level and getting that rezoning done. Um, are you guys backing things like the repeal of Costa Hawkins? Like what other initiatives are you guys kind of pushing for that's outside the scope of of your direct um, kind of focus at United Way?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, everyone in is is very much focused on making sure uh, that that five billion dollars and the plans that we have, which are all incredibly thoughtful and need to happen, happen. So that's our core sort of conversation, but we are not oblivious to. And in fact, if you look at our social, we are actively talking about the, the larger housing conversation mm-hmm. and how that drives homelessness. So I would just put a pin in that one and say, the money's not going to spend itself. The plans won't a- self-activate. Somebody needs to push, push, push on those specifically to a really big, wide audience. So that's our core focus. Um, in the context of uh, Sacramento legislation or statewide les- legislation, um, we are starting to engage more in that conversation. Um, we took a position in support of SB 35 in the yeah. last cycle, um, which sort of takes the hammer to local cities that aren't producing housing, yeah. which is the large majority of them. Um, that was uh, sort of a new step for United Way and a new step in this space. Uh, so we're starting to dig deeper into that. Um, figuring out how we keep naturally occur- people in naturally occur- occurring affordable housing, critical. Yeah. critical right because we're not going to be able to subsidize our way uh out of this if we we're, if we we're are 500,000 units short of housing that is affordable to people whether that's publicly subsidized or just naturally occurring um we- we don't have the public dollars or the public will to spend that much money to build that much housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to figure out how we use the tools of the market that still creates actual affordable housing mm-hmm. um, and everything beyond, whether that's rent control or whatever, uh, because yeah, that's a huge issue for us. But we need to fundamentally increase the supply mm-hmm. um, and using lots of different ways. I'm not just talking about sort of like EMB build, build, build. I'm talking about strategically increasing the supply yeah. um, because
0: Yeah. And it it, it seems like this is um, outside of just L.A. going to be a much bigger uh, struggle across the entire county because L.A. County is is, you know, bigger than 40 states and an incredibly heterogeneous place. Uh, But for people who are interested in getting involved uh, in the fight, how can they connect with you guys? Yeah, great question. So
1: if you sign up for our uh, email blasts on everyone in L.A. dot org, you'll get sort of activations and call to action. Um, And then there's also a way to sign up for trainings if you wanna sort of be trained in the language of supportive housing siting and homelessness and all the stuff we've been talking about here today. This has been like a mini training of sorts, uh, just to really be able to wrap your mind around what these challenges are and what the solutions are. Um, You can also sign up for that on our website and Mike Dennis or one of our organizers will follow up with you and say, hey, we got this thing coming up in this area in the next few weeks, hope you can be there with us. You wanna be at a training, we got one of these. Um, So yeah, we're trying to create those opportunities uh, and really, in the context of this fight.
0: Excellent. Very cool. And, uh, and uh, you can always follow them on Twitter at, at everyone in LA. Uh, I do and it's got some really like, it, it's good to, to keep up with what's going on on the ground. And one thing we briefly touched on, but one thing we're working on more at Ground Game here is pressuring neighborhood councils to spend money because they get over the 100 neighborhood council about $4 million a year. Right now they're about to leave $2 million of that on the table. Uh, so we're, we're looking to get people to show up at neighborhood councils to pressure them to spend money on things like temporary showers, hygiene kits, basic sanitation, fresh socks, just little things will make people's lives easier. But that doesn't happen if if you don't show up and, and tell those people to spend that money. So, Tommy, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? I
1: just uh, really appreciate the focus that you guys are bringing to this. Um, it, it's a running joke that uh, on the Everyone In campaign, we are trying to get everyone in, uh, and you guys are clearly in, and so we appreciate your work and uh, look forward to continuing this fight together.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Also, if you appreciate the work we're doing at Knock, we now have a Patreon set up. We're trying to get to the point where we can actually, you know, pay some of our writers who are doing this amazing work. I hope you're checking out our coverage of the, the tenants' fights with shady landlords, the fight for criminal and racial justice in the city, and basically all of our muckraking goodness. As always, you can head over to CrowdSource, and you can always drop Ground Game a sustaining donation, which we would really, really appreciate. Anyways, thank you guys very much. Never lose your sense of outrage.